0: going to uh, take a moment and uh, open the word of God here tonight and we're going to finish a series we've been in third John and I just want to say before we do that uh, thank you so much to all of you who worked so hard in preschool ministry uh, what an incredible job those who helped lead our children's choirs and I was picking up a few over there a little while ago and uh, watching what they were doing looking forward to their program soon and uh, those who helped lead preschool choir I mean think about the joy, and the challenges of leading preschool choir. Can you think about that for a moment? Uh, But I still remember songs that I learned when I was a little child and the doctrine and the truth that I learned as a little child right here at Second Baptist Church. And I'm so very grateful for so many of you who served in those areas, who serve in those areas, and so many of you who serve in various areas of the church. And so I know that many of you are here tonight. You wanted to hear your, uh, your, your baby sing, and I'm glad that you got to do that. We're going to finish this series in 3 John. I promise I'm not going to keep you very long, but I want to dive into the text of Scripture tonight in 3 John. And uh, there are no chapters in 3 John. Uh, We're in a series entitled The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And the shortest book in the New Testament. Uh, In the Greek, it's the shortest book in the entire New Testament. And I called it The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly because in the book of 3 John, John writes a letter to the church, and he describes that there are folks in the church that are good, folks that are bad, and folks that are ugly. Even in the early church, even in the New Testament church, there were people who encountered problems and issues and difficulties. And the truth is today, just like in the early church, In the church today, there are those that are good and not so good. We've got some bad and ugly. I'm not talking about our church, okay, because we know that we're all good, right? Nobody ever causes any problems. Nobody ever has any issues. Nobody ever complains. Nobody ever goes home and eats lunch and complains about uh, how the preacher did that morning or anything like that, right? But the truth is churches are made up of imperfect people. And when you have imperfect people, there will always be problems, But you have to ask this question and answer this question. Am I going to be part of the problem or am I going to be part of the solution? And the answer to that lies in the fact you and I have to decide and determine that we're going to be selfless, not selfish. Problems arise in marriage, in families in friendships, and in the church when we choose to be selfish instead of selfless. And so here in 3 John we see four men. We see a man uh, named Gaius to whom the letter was written from the Apostle John. We see a man named Diotrephes who opposed the work of God. We see a man named Demetrius who was honored. And we see the Apostle John. We finish tonight in verse 13, 14, and 15. As we look at the text of Scripture, as we talk about those who are hopeful those who are hopeful in the work of God. We've talked about how one, Gaius, uh, was a help to the work of God. How Diotrephes hindered the work of God. How Demetrius was honored in the work of God. And tonight we'll talk about those who are hopeful in the work of God. Third John, verse 13, 14, and 15. This is John writing. He said, I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon... And we will talk face-to-face. doesn't say Facebook-to-Facebook, right? We will talk face-to-face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Remember the powers in the Word of God. Join me in prayer. Father, tonight, thank you for the truth of your Word. Teach us from its pages. Transform us by its power. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to hope? What does it mean to have hope in this life? For for many of us, sadly, hope is how this little boy defined it. Hope is wishing for something you know you ain't going to get. That's what that little boy said. But the truth is, I've told you this many times, and we need to remember that hope in the Bible is not a wish or a want or desire. Hope in the Bible is a promise. The Bible says that hope does not disappoint. Biblical hope means it's an expectation of something that is going to happen. It just hasn't yet happened we have a hope for heaven one day and those of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that hope is firmly fixed and secure it's not a wish or a want we're not trying to work our way there it's a reality it just hasn't yet happened and that's biblical hope we all need to have hope no matter what the circumstance or what the situation we can have hope in Jesus Christ I heard about a never-say-die general who was leading his troops into battle. And he was captured along with several of his soldiers. And they threw this general and several of his soldiers down into a deep, dark pit. And in that deep, dark pit, it was filled with horse manure. I mean, they were covered from head to toe. The general stood up and said, let's go, men, and dove into the pile of manure. He said, with this much manure, there's got to be a horse in here somewhere, right? Now, that is never-ending hope What kind of people are we going to be? Are we going to be people who have a hope and an assurance and a confidence? Are we going to be people who are discouraged, who are downtrodden, who are defeated? Those who know Jesus Christ should never lose hope. Because you're never without hope when you know Jesus. Jesus. The apostle John was a man of hope. We see this two big things here, verse 13 and 14 and verse 15. Number one, he was hoping to enjoy their presence. He was hoping to enjoy their presence. John says here in verse 13 and 14 that his desire is to see the people of God. He wants to see them face to face. I'm so thankful that God has given us the church here on earth. I am so grateful that God chose in His infinite wisdom to establish a local body of believers called the New Testament church. When He saved us, He didn't tell us to go live the Christian life on our own, but He placed us in the context of community. And this is the place where the Christian life can be best lived out within the context of a community called the church. When God saved people in the New Testament, what did He do? When their life was changed by the gospel they were immediately placed in the context of the church so they could grow in their relationship with the Lord Jesus and in relationship with others. Now, these days, there are popular authors and teachers and former pastors who say, I'm going to love God and I'm going to serve God, but I'm not going to do it in the context of the church. I love God and I want to follow Him, but I'm no longer going to be a part of the church. But I want you to know tonight, the Bible knows nothing of that sort of Christianity. If you read the Bible, those who genuinely love Jesus have a desire to fellowship with other believers as a part of a local New Testament church. This shows us how important relationships are. John is saying, I want to enjoy your presence. I want to be with you. When I come to church, I enjoy being here with the people of God. This ought to be a place where we have friends, where we can fellowship, we can have a good time, drink a cup of coffee, slap somebody on the back, smile at them, share our struggles and burdens, enjoy one another, and grow as believers in Jesus Christ. Look look what he says here in verses 13 and 14. He says, I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I want to see you, look at now, I want to see you soon, and I want to see you face to face. John says he has a hope, an expectation that he's going to see them soon, And he wants to see them face to face. Now, the end of 3 John is very similar to the end of 2 John, written by the same John, the apostle. If you look at 2 John, verse 12, notice the end. Though I had much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face that your joy may be complete. His desire was to come soon. Now, think about this. If John writes a letter to the church and his desire is to come soon, and you are Demetrius or Gaius, that's encouraging, isn't it? If you're Demetrius, who's honored in the work of God, or or Gaius, who's helpful to the work of God, that's encouraging. The apostle John's coming, and we get to see him face to face. But if you're a Diotrephes, you're causing trouble, problems, then... You're not looking forward to the apostle Junk. It's kind of like, um, like how you feel when you see a police car. It depends on the context, right? So if, if, if you are in a bad situation, somebody's, uh, somebody's, you know, stick them up and they got a gun and you're holding your hands up in the air and they're trying to steal everything you've got and you see a police car come, you're like, oh, thank the Lord, I've been rescued. You know, that's a good thing. But if you're going 90 miles an hour down Moody Road head south of Matt Arthur Elementary and you see those flashing blue lights, what do you say? Oh, no, this is not good at all. You're going to be in big trouble, right? So John saying, I'm coming soon is an encouragement to some, but it is a warning to others. Those who are faithful in the work of God should be encouraged, but those who are unfaithful, those who are opposing the work of God, are are warned. John's heart is full for Gaius and for Demetrius, but he's coming. And in fact, when we we read about Diotrephes, who was opposing the work of God, John said, I'm going to handle this. I'm going to deal with this. Just you wait. You wait till I get there. I'm going to handle this. There's a wonderful pastoral wisdom in his approach. I love what he says here. I want to see you, look at this now, face to face. Folks, let's just be honest. There's something even today about face-to-face communication that is so vital and important. We live in the most social age ever, but the least relational age ever. We live where everybody's connected on how many friends do you have on Facebook and followers do you have on Twitter and how many pictures do you have on Instagram and and, uh, does anybody use MySpace anymore? I didn't think so. Same group uses MySpace that still uses AOL, right? And we are connected in so many ways, but even today, an email, an inbox in Facebook, a direct message in Twitter, a text message, those things can still be taken out of context, right? Have you ever written an email and and you had a smile on your face writing that email, a little sarcasm, maybe a little fun, and somebody got their feelings hurt over the email you wrote or the text message you sent, and you're like, whoa, wait a second. I didn't mean to do that. There's something to be said looking people in the eye. This is This is why we are to come to church and be a part of the body of Christ so we can sit across from people and see them, encourage them. I can't can't sense your mood through a text message, no matter how many emojis you use, okay? I can't sense your mood through an email. I can't see your eyes. But there's an important thing about living in relationship face-to-face. Literally, it means mouth-to-mouth. In other words, talking to one another, having a relationship. Baptists are good at that, right? We can talk to each other, right? So John says, I'm going to come handle this, and I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to encourage those who need encouragement, and I'm going to rebuke those who need to be rebuked. We all need real friends. Listen carefully. We all need real friends, not just Facebook friends or Twitter followers or Instagram followers, right? We need Real friends. A, a real friend is, is somebody who, when you make a fool of yourself, they don't think you've done the, the permanent job, okay? A, a real friend is, is somebody who walks in when everybody else walks out. A real friend is, is somebody who wants to be there for you no matter what. A false friend is, uh, is like your shadow. They're there as long as the sun's shining, but when you step in the shade, they're nowhere to be found. We all need real friends. I heard about a farmer who had a, a, a very loved pet parrot. His whole family loved this pet parrot, but this farmer had such a problem with crows in his cornfield. He couldn't get the crows out of his cornfield, but he had this parrot, and it was the most social and talkative parrot you'd, parrot you'd ever see in your whole life. And so one day, the farmer decided that he was going to do something about all the crows in the cornfield, so he crawled along his fence line with a shotgun. What he didn't know was... His parrot got out of the house and flew over to hang out with all the crows because he's the most social, talkative parrot you've ever seen in your life. The farmer leaps up behind the fence line, fires the shotgun, and several crows begin to fly then fall, but he notices off in the distance his little parrot falls too. He runs out and picks up that beloved family pet and Fortunately, the parrot's alive, ruffled feathers, broken wing, walks back to the house and brings the parrot in the house. The little boys and little girls are there with tears in their eyes. Daddy, 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 what happened? And before the man could answer, the parrot spoke up and said, bad company. Bad company. Listen carefully. We all need good friends. Good friends we can count on, we can rely on, we can depend on, and we can grow with. John is saying, I want to see you face to face. I want to experience God's presence with you. I want to grow. Don't, listen carefully. Don't you know some people in your life you just can't wait to be around? Don't you know some people in your life that when they show up or you see them, it's like just an encouragement to your soul. It's like water in a dry time. Don't you know some people you can get around and, and no matter how you're feeling or how difficult it is, you can be encouraged because you're around them and they speak life into you and give you encouragement. Let me, let me tell you, that's the way the church of God is for me. When I come here on Sundays and on Wednesdays and gather with the people of God, I'm encouraged. I love gathering with God's people to worship the Lord. And if you can't figure out how to enjoy church on earth, you're going to have a hard time being happy in heaven. Because we're going to be, if you're a believer, we'll be around God's people for all of eternity. Even the weird ones. And you know they're all over the place. John desperately wanted to build those relationships. This is what Jesus said in the New Testament. You know, what's it about, folks? What is it about? Loving God and loving people. we got to love the people of God. So he hopes to enjoy their presence. And number two, he's hoping to experience God's peace. Look at what he says right there at the beginning of verse 14. Peace be to you. This must have been a real encouragement to somebody like Gaius. Because Gaius is not living in the midst of peace. Gaius has helped leading a church... He's helping to lead a church where a man like Diotrephes, who wants to have the preeminence, is messing things up. And so Gaius is living in anything but peace. He's living in the midst of chaos and confusion. And John says to him, peace be to you. You see, peace doesn't mean much when times are easy, right? Anybody can have peace when nothing bad's happening. Anybody can have peace when their bracket hasn't been busted, right? March Madness folks. Anybody can have peace when, when the skies are blue and the sun is out. Anybody can have peace when things are good. Anybody can have peace when the report card says all A's or the college says you're admitted. Anybody can have peace when everything's great, but peace means something when the storms of life come and shake you to your very core. And this is where Gaius is. He's in, a, he's in a time of turmoil, and John says to him, Peace. George Morrison wrote this Peace is the possession of adequate resources. Do you hear that? Now, this is good. That is a fabulous definition of peace. Peace is the possession of adequate resources. And the Bible says, Philippians 4, 6 to 7, we can experience the peace of God because we have everything we need in Jesus Christ. So as a believer, there's no situation you face where you do not have adequate resources to encounter that situation and have peace in the midst of a storm. There's nothing you encounter that Jesus can't help you handle or walk through. Peace is having adequate resources in every circumstance and every situation. And with that word soon, John describes the urgency and his desire to enjoy the peace of God. Peace. Peace is a wonderful Christian grace that has several facets. You need to understand you can have the peace of God, but you can only have it after you've experienced peace with God. We all want to live peaceful lives. But we will never experience peace as God intends. Apart from experience the peace with God that comes through a relationship with God. Through Jesus. You see the Bible tells us that on the cross, this is a fabulous phrase in the New Testament. Jesus Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. His death was an avenue whereby man and God were reconciled and brought together no longer enemies, friends, peace through the cross. But you can't have the practical peace of God unless you have the positional peace with God that puts you in a right relationship with Him. The Bible tells us in Romans 5.1, God loved us even while we were yet sinners. And now there's no condemnation. For those that are in Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9 talks about the peace that we can have. John adapts this well-known common greeting. says, peace be to you. But what he's saying is this. I want you, no matter what circumstance or situation you're in, to be able to experience God's peace. What's the Bible say in John 15, 13? Look at your screen. John chapter 15 and 13. Look at what Jesus says. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. See, what does John say here in verse 15? Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Do you know this is the only place in the New Testament where believers are referred to as friends? But I'm going to tell you something. Some of the best friends I have are church people. Some of the best friends I have are church people. People who I can depend on, people who I can call, people who love God, people who love me in spite of my faults and failures, people who love you, some of the best friends I have, I found because they're a part of the family of God like I am. He says, greet the friends. Jesus says there's no greater love than one who lays down his life for his friends. And then in, in John 15, verse 14, the next verse, you know what he says? You are my friend if... You do what I command. What's it mean to be a friend of God? We love to sing that song. It's a great song. A wonderful truth. I'm a friend of God. But you're not God's friend if you don't do what He says. I'm a friend of God if I obey Him and follow Him and experience His peace in my life. Now, get the picture of this kind of peace. And I, we're almost finished, but I want to I paint this picture for you. Gaius is in the midst of turmoil. The church is in an upheaval because Diotrephes wants to have the preeminence. He's trying to to run the show. John says, peace to you. John says, I want you to experience God's peace He's, he's speaking peace in the midst of a storm. Picture a massive hurricane raging over the ocean. You've, you've seen before on the Weather Channel or Ben Jones on WMAZ. They show the, the Doppler radar and this huge cyclone, these, these huge hurricanes over the ocean. On the surface of the sea, can you imagine how tumultuous and crazy it is and how the giant waves create this sense of havoc and chaos? But if you go 25 feet down, just 25 feet down, the waters are clear and calm. 25 feet down, peace. On the surface, the storm is raging and chaos abounds. But 25 feet below the surface, the fish go on living, totally unaware of the storm above them. Listen carefully. When there is depth, there is peace. Oh, that's that's worth the price of admission tonight, okay? When there's depth, there's peace. When I go deeper and stronger in my relationship with God, when my roots sink down deep, when I can go below the surface, the storm is raging around me. When I can go below the surface, grow deeper in my Christian life, in my relationship with God, I can experience His peace no matter what storm abounds. That's a powerful truth. I heard a story of a little girl. She walked to school every single day. It wasn't very far. One day, the, the mother became very concerned because the, the weather turned bad very quickly awful rain, thunder, lightning. And here's this little girl who's supposed to walk home from school. And as the afternoon progressed, the winds began worse and the storm clouds rolled. And it was just one of those, one of those middle Georgia thunderstorms that just can appear in a moment. This little girl's walking home from school like she normally is. Her mom asked off work and said, look, I've got to go get my little girl. She's walking home in this mess and here it is rain and storm clouds and thunder and lightning and all this kind of stuff and this little girl's just kind of skipping along the sidewalk in the middle of the rain. And every time it would lightning, she'd stop, she'd look up at the sky, and she'd smile. And then she began to walk on a little bit more and it would lightning one more time. She'd stop, she'd look up at the smile look up at the clouds, and she'd smile. mom finally caught up with her on the way and she she said, Sweetheart, get in the car, get in the car. The lightning flashed, she stopped, she'd look up at the sky. And she'd smile. She said, what in the world are you doing? You need to get out of the storm. She said, mommy, God keeps taking my picture and I want to look pretty. I want you to know, when you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have a calm assurance. In the midst of any storm, and any crisis, any problem, no matter how gray the sky is, no matter how bad the storm is, no matter how close the lightning strikes, there's a God in heaven who loves you. He knows you and He cares. Even though the world looks stormy and daunting at times, sometimes, even in the storm, we need to remember to look up at the heavens and smile. Because we have a hope. Oh, that's what this is all about, right? We have a hope, not a wish or a want, but a firm foundation and an assurance that no matter how stormy this world gets, there's a promise in Jesus Christ that one day when he returns, he will set all things straight, make all things new, and right all wrongs. That is And so maybe tonight you need hope. The storms are raging, chaos abounds, the hurricanes on the surface, and you need to go deeper where there's depth, there's peace. Maybe you need to grow in your relationship with God to come to understand that circumstances can't shake you unless you allow them to. And you can choose in any circumstance and situation no matter how difficult, to hope in God. Anyone who has ever hoped in God will find that it is time well spent and that hope does not disappoint.